Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, this is Tim Foster with Capital Weekly, and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. This is our second episode of the podcast that is going to be broadcasting audio from our recent California in Crisis COVID-19 conference. That was an online event that we held on September 17th. We were in Sacramento. Our panelists were all over the state. Uh, This panel discussion will focus on health equity. Uh, The COVID-19 pandemic underscored stark disparities in the healthcare system. Your chance of getting and surviving the virus is heavily dependent on your race, your class, your income. And We asked our panelists what can be done to achieve health equity, eliminate disparities, and improve the health of all groups. Our panelists are Assemblywoman Cecilia Aguiar-Curry, Sonia Young-Adam of the California Black Women's Health Project, Jeffrey Reynoso of the Latino Coalition for Healthy California, Kieran Savage-Sangwan of the California Pan-Ethnic Health Network. Our moderator is Sigrid Bothan of Capital Weekly, a longtime healthcare reporter. Uh, in fact, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who knows more about healthcare reporting and journalism uh, in in Sacramento. So we were lucky to have her. I also wanted to thank our sponsors for the event. We could not have done this without them. Uh, we had Kaiser Permanente, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications. Capital Advocacy, California Building Industry Association, Lucas Public Affairs, California Professional Firefighters, the Associated Builders and Contractors of Northern California, and Pandora. Uh, They made this event possible and made it possible for us to put this recording up for you today. With that, I'm going to turn you over to Zigrid, and thank you so much for listening. Excellent. Thank you. And um, I'd like to introduce the members of our panel. Assemblywoman Cecilia Aguiar-Curry is running late, as Tim said. Um, we have with us, uh, and this is a very distinguished panel, a wonderful panel, uh, Sonia Young-Adam, CEO of the California Black Women's Health Project, Dr. Jeffrey Reynoso, Executive Director of the Latino Coalition for a Healthy California, Kieran Savage Sangwan, Executive Director of the California Pan-Ethnic Health Network. I'd like to start by each of you talking a little bit about your career, about your work, your organizations, and um, particularly how you are addressing uh, historic healthcare inequities and the additional challenges presented by the pandemic. Um, And I do want a dialogue here, so I will Uh, pose a few questions to individual panelists, but I want you to feel free to step in at at any time. And uh, this is your panel. I'm I'm just the moderator. Oh, Assemblywoman Aguiar joined us. This is Assemblywoman Cecilia Aguiar-Curry. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Um, You've uh, authored, you've been in the Assembly about three years, I think. You're an author of legislation on healthcare, children's mental health, education, food and ag, the digital divide, all important subjects. So we have a lot to cover in a, in a short time. So let's be cog- we need to be cognizant of the time. And uh, first I wanted to ask um, uh, 
Kieran uh, Savage Sangwan, am I pronouncing your name correctly, I hope? Um, your organization focuses on inequities and racism within the healthcare system. At the beginning of the pandemic, you issued a set of recommendations for Governor Newsom to consider for an equitable response to COVID-19. We know that COVID is adding, adding to layers of deeply entrenched disparities. In addition, the state has faced ongoing problems with access to testing in low-income communities of color. Can you tell us how the long-standing disparities in healthcare have contributed to the disparate impact of COVID-19? And how have you proposed that California address these inequities, given where we are in the pandemic today? Um, but first, now that's the first question, but I'd like each of you to tell us a little bit about your own background and how it applies to uh, how you address the uh, health inequities that are endemic, systemic in our society and worsened by, um, by COVID. Could you start, Karen? Sure, happy to. Thanks, Sigrid, and, and thanks Capital Weekly for having us um, on this panel. Certainly always appreciate the invitation. Um, so I'm the Executive Director of the California Pan-Ethnic Pan Health Network, or CPEN. We are a statewide multicultural um, health advocacy organization. Um, and so what that means is we work very closely with communities and community-based organizations across the state who are um, deeply embedded um, in, in local communities that are uh, primarily people of color. Um, we work with all of those folks to really uplift um, the voices and ensure that there is community participation and community voice in both state and local um, decision-making and policy-making when it comes to health, health, uh, health care and the social determinants of health. Um, and so we have been active for a long time on issues related to um, how do people get health care? Do people have access to health care? What does it look like if you're a person of color or if you speak a language other than English? And what kinds of changes do we need to make in our health care system so that there's equitable access? But even more than that, <clears throat> I think what COVID is showing us is that um, even when people have access to healthcare, we have deeply entrenched disparities and inequities in our healthcare system um, as a result of racism, systemic structural racism. And that um, these are, you know, generations old problems, um, but really COVID I think has put a tremendous spotlight um, on what has happened to communities of color for decades and has also shown us what happens when we don't pay attention to those problems, when we don't give equity the attention that it deserves, when we don't center equity in our design of systems. We have systems that are doing what they were designed to do, right? And um, we're really built around racism and I would say particularly anti-Black racism, which I think is important to call out. Um, and so a lot of our work with COVID you know, I, I sort of say the, the pandemic and the impact of the pandemic is horrifying and is tragic. It's also not necessarily unexpected given what we've done and how we've set up our system, right? And so the disparities that we see um, in particular with Latinos contracting COVID at a much higher rate than their share of the population with the black community dying from COVID at alarmingly high rates. Um, those are things that I think um, we as a state um, should have, could have, and, and, and can still anticipate that those are outcomes we'll have if we don't do things differently. And so that's where we really focus on what are those significant um, changes and reforms that are needed, I would say, both in the healthcare system and I think, um, you know, people sort of finally also paying attention to public health and the tremendous role that public, public health plays 
um, in ensuring that we have equitable communities. So I'm happy to talk you know, more in depth about our recommendations and sort of what we see, um, but just as a general overview, that's, that's who we are, that's um, how we come to this work. And again, it's just a, thrilling to be on, on this panel with my good friends, Jeff and Sonia, as well as with the um, Assemblywoman today. So I'll pass it on. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Reynoso, um, you have a very distinguished background. You grew up in a working class immigrant family. We're the first Latino to receive a doctorate in public health from the prestigious Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and you've long studied healthcare disparity. We'll get back to more specific questions, and I want any of you to join in after our initial introductions. Could you tell us a bit about your organization and how you have addressed healthcare inequities and how the pandemic has worsened that situation and put a spotlight on it, as Karen pointed out. Sure. Good morning. Thank you, uh, Capital Weekly, for the invitation. Great to see friends and colleagues on, on the panel. Um, you know, I, I would like to start with, uh, you know, I think there's always this prestige of an Ivy League education, uh, but, you know, the first trajectory of my educational career was in public schools here in California and uh, the University of California system in particular, and that set me up for, uh, for that opportunity. And so, you know, I think when we think about health inequities, um, they're very connected to uh, both uh, disparities and inequities in our education systems, in our economic systems. And so uh, really thinking about um, how are we investing in our public education systems to close those gaps in economic opportunity, which ultimately impact um, health inequities. So in my current role, I serve, uh, have the pleasure of serving as the executive director of the Latino Coalition for Healthy California, where statewide policy advocacy organization advocating for health equity of the Latinx community in California to build uh, healthy communities for all Californians. I think for us, uh, we're particularly concerned uh, around uh, some of the same things that Karen brought up earlier. Um, when we were founded um, in the early 90s, it was around the Clinton um, healthcare reform conversations nationally and a group of uh, Latino advocates came together because we uh, recognize that any conversation around healthcare reform had to include the specific challenges um, present within the Latino community, and that includes language access, that includes um, cultural uh, uh, cultural issues, and also uh, the issue of immigration, and ensuring that our system uh, covers all, regardless of income or immigration status. So, you know, just to say that a lot of the issues that we've been champion, um, championing over the decades, um, including health for all, uh, which is coverage for all, regardless of immigration status, um, they were relevant um, at our founding. They're more relevant now today um, with COVID-19. We've been very concerned and, you know, there's data issues uh, with uh, local uh, and state data around COVID-19. We've been really concerned with uh, the lack of data, particularly around testing, you know, some, somewhere upwards around 33%. 30% of the data still doesn't have that race ethnicity data that we really need to um, really look at um, if we're gonna think about an equitable response uh, to COVID-19. Uh, but for the Latino community, 60% uh, of cases, 50% of deaths, um, and we represent uh, nearly 40% of the state's population. And just given the magnitude of our, our representation in the state, uh, it's a big challenge um, that we have to we have to address um, and include and includes um, reforms within our healthcare system and includes um, additional investments in our public health 
uh, infrastructure, epidemiology, contact tracing, uh, and then also, you know, addressing inequities in other systems. Uh, uh, immigration and immigrant rights um, is a big topic uh, for us, um, and removing immigration status um, as a barrier to all of these systems is critically important. Uh, so I know we'll get into a really rich discussion, but I wanted to just share a little bit about how we look at the work. Um, we, you know, I'll just close out by saying, we, we think that the solutions, the policy solutions at a state and local level do um, require and necessitate an involvement of community in those conversations, an involvement of undocumented immigrants, an involvement of uh, Spanish speakers, an involvement of youth um, in those conversations. Those who are most impacted should be part um, of the designing the implementation of um, all of our healthcare and social services. And we think that's, you know, one step uh, towards an equitable response uh, to COVID-19. Thank you. Um, and we'll get back to all, all of those points. They're all extremely important. Um, Sonia Adam, uh, I've, I've been going over all your bios, which are just fascinating. You have vast experience in healthcare, business, marketing, even the entertainment industry, Walt Disney. Um, how do you draw on that experience in your current position as CEO of the Black Women's Health Project? And what are you doing to address uh, healthcare inequities? If you could give us an opening statement. Thank you. Sure. And thank you, Sigrid. And thank you, Capital Weekly, for the invitation to come on and to have this conversation with my peers and with, uh, you know, very respected people in this work. I'm, uh, you know, a little bit... Um, you know, stressed and a little bit, um, you know, anxious given the time that we're in and, you know, the numbers of conversations that have become increasingly necessary, you know, around this issue of equity. It's not new, um, but, you know, it's, there's an interest now in, uh, you know, having these conversations. And so, you know, there's almost not a day that goes by where, you know, I'm not having to draw on, <clears throat> you know, years of, uh, you know, spending time in spaces including my career in the entertainment industry. I was in the investment banking industry um, at a time and, you know, working in different sectors and seeing, you know, what, um, you know, issues, historical issues of inequity look like. And, you know, in the, you know, 80s and 90s, you know, there was a great deal of focus on, you know, diversity and inclusion. Um, and, you know, today, you know, we're talking about, you know, things like, you know, bias in, in healthcare and in other sectors and, the challenges. Um, however, I want to say for California Black Women's Health Project and the work that we do, you know, we are um, spinning our, you know, wheels in some ways, um, you know, uh, fighting and advocating against a system, you know, that has systemically been designed, you know, to provide us with inadequate care, um, often neglectful care. And, you know, COVID-19, I mean, we're in a crisis. And we are, again, you know, as history, you know, continues to repeat itself, you know, seeing inordinate challenges in the Black community in California. And we are seeing those challenges, you know, uh, because of a lack of information. Um, you know, certainly as the crisis began, um, there were, you know, active um, posts and active, you know, um, uh, uh, presentations and news reports, you know, of public health professionals and other professionals in, in health, you know, speaking about, you know, who was at risk, you know, of uh, this particular uh, pandemic. And, you know, there was, you know, 
little to no conversation whatsoever about, you know, the the impact that the disease could have on, you know, folks with pre-existing conditions and, you know, respiratory disease, <clears throat> you know, we, we, it's like we knew, you know, but we, we, we weren't hearing that from, you know, the voices, um, you know, who were speaking about health, you know, that we were supposed to trust and that, you know, we were supposed to lean into. And so, you know, in our community, we were not advised you know, to, you know, to protect and to, you know, be particularly mindful of, you know, issues where we have, you know, asthma and other pre-existing conditions that are, that are just now further exacerbated. Yeah. And so there was an equity in the system prior um, to COVID. And now, you know, we're just seeing, you know, uh, unnecessary, you know, uh, levels of death. I mean, and a level of, you know, even mental health care that has just further, um, you know, caused, added stress, added anxiety to our community. And so I'm glad to have this conversation. You know, I look forward to, you know, hearing from uh, my colleagues and, you know, we're all on the, on the front lines of advocacy and policy, you know, to address changes um, in, in what's happening in California. Absolutely. Um, Assemblywoman uh, Agwe R. Curry, thank you for joining us. Um, in your three years in the assembly and many years in local and regional government, you've introduced important legislation on a variety of subjects, including healthcare, mental health, agriculture, and education. Um, could, if you could tell us a little bit about your legislative package, those bills that failed, this was a very difficult, chaotic legislative session, which was you know, disrupted by COVID. So a lot of important bills didn't get through. A lot of important bills did on, on mm -hmm. mental health and other, other issues. Um, but what do you think is the future for legislation to address growing inequities in healthcare and related issues? And just talk a little bit about your own sure. efforts in this regard. Thank you. Sure, thank you, Sigrid. Thank you, Capital Weekly, for including me today. Um, you know, let me just start, just uh, back up a little bit, but three years ago, um, I really wanted to understand my district. It's a rural district. I have six counties. It's large. Um, and the first thing that came to mind when I was traveling the area with my team, I took my entire team out, was access. And was the lack of access, whether it was transportation access, whether it was healthcare access, education, um, training. I mean, you name it. I use that word quite a bit in our rural communities. But what happens in the rural communities also happens in our urban areas. But I have focused primarily on how can we make sure that our rural communities uh, are, uh, have healthcare access. Um, right off the bat is that, you know, we've had uh, five years, uh, three, three or four years of fires in my district. The entire district has gone up in flames. And it changes the way that we look at healthcare. It changes the way we look at transportation. So um, we, um, my team and I sat back and said, how can we go forward and what kind of vision can we have? Um, we investigated different types of, we talked to doctors, the physicians, uh, healthcare clinics throughout the area, and they all would say to you, it's access and trying to get um, doctors and nurses to come to rural areas. It's difficult. The pay's not the same. We still have the big loans. Um, also, sometimes a family member doesn't want to go live in Lake County, California, for whatever reason. But the fact of the matter is, is that we didn't have, we don't have enough mental health uh, providers. We don't have enough physicians. So... Um, that's when it came to mind is that what's, why aren't we doing telehealth? And telehealth has been uh, incredible, particularly with the COVID. So we um, decided to do telehealth bills and it was kind of scary because not everybody wanted to go that route and they didn't know how they would get reimbursed. So 
we, um, and I, when I say we, my whole team did this. Um, we did AB 744, a creative telehealth parity by requiring that health plans or insurance can be reimbursed uh, to a healthcare provider for services delivered to an enrollee through telehealth. If just as like if the, the, the patient was going to the doctor's office. Um, you know, when you have really good friends and the friends of mine in the rural area that are doctors, they said this particular bill saved them because they could get reimbursed, they could talk to their patients on the phone, they could uh, do an analysis of that particular patient, and then the patient could come in and with a minimal time in the doctor's office, or maybe not in the doctor's office at all. So um, we were um, excited about that. Not only that, is that it's become a, a standard throughout the United States. People are looking at what California are doing based upon that bill, as well as AB um, 1494. And it makes sure that if it's a, a state of emergency, our community clinics can be reimbursed for telehealth uh, provided to Medi-Cal patients after the aftermath of a disaster. And then we did AB 401, which authored the, my very first year as a legislature for telepharmacy, so that we could get pharmacies out in our rural areas as well. So as you can see, is that my, my whole conversations are always about access. How can we have a vision going forward? Um, and we have a lot more work to do. There's no doubt about it. Um, but we have put in the framework to move that forward. Um, what I have found so far is that luckily is that in our rural communities, they have really latched onto telehealth and they're finding more of our Latinx, why did I say it wrong, Latino community uh, to um, attend going to the doctor. Mental health um, visits have gone up 750%. And because of access, if you don't have transportation access to your doctor's appointment, uh, to your um, behavioral health appointment, what's the chances of going at all? So we have seen that we have to have a vision and we wanna make sure it's affordable for everyone. Um, and that's, that's where I have really stressed. Um, we've, we attempted some uh, legislation this year for mental health for our um, schools. And we are putting that on hold uh, as well as Alzheimer's um, uh, help for uh, making sure if there's a fire that we can get our Alzheimer's patients out safely. So we have done a lot on healthcare and I will continue to do that. But the main thing is to make sure with the COVID, it really opened the door for us to look at this a little bit differently and to get buy-in. Um, my bills were not to be implemented until uh, January 21. And um, luckily, luckily, I guess, because of the COVID, we got to implement those sooner. And we've seen a big change for our communities. Excellent. Sigrid, uh, um, do you mind if I just add, and thank you so much. Yes, um, no, please, go yeah. ahead. No, I just, I really, I really appreciate, you know, the, um, you know, the mention of, uh, you know, the importance of telehealth and, and what drastic changes we are seeing. And on the earlier panel, um, there was an extensive conversation about um, the importance of telehealth. And, you know, that is, an, that is where I, you know, think like, you know, we have had years of, of access issues in healthcare. And, you know, where particularly where, you know, urban, you know, uh, marginalized, um, you know, minority or, uh, you know, black, brown, you know, other communities have been, you know, left out. And so it takes a, a pandemic, you know, to impact our society for then there to be instituted, um, you know, policies and, 
and practices where we can now use telehealth. And so it's, it's again, it's again a, a more evidence of the inequity, you know, in the way we even respond, you know, to an issue or a crisis. You know, it has to impact certain communities before we begin to see, you know, that it's important to make certain changes, you know, that can really, um, improve the lives of, of many people in our state. So, you know, our community, I mean, we would have greatly appreciated, you know, telehealth and having, you know, the ability, even where we have, you know, um, you know challenges with, um, you know, technology, you know, having that as an option, because our, our ability, not only just as far as transportation is concerned, but, you know, for the Black community, even our when we do come in face-to-face -face contact, you know, with clinical health environments, you know, there are issues and challenges that we face every single time. And so, you know, to be able to create some level of distance where you can begin to at least talk to a clinician in a, in a way where you feel more comfortable, you know, where you haven't had, um, you know, a, a slight from the time you enter the building from the security guard at the door to the intake, you know, to ultimately talking to a nurse and then finally seeing a provider. That's too many layers of, of challenges right. for us to have experienced. So I'm glad you talked about telehealth. I just know that all, while it is, it is extremely important, again, you know, it is only now suddenly, you know, 700% more available in communities, you know, because we have a crisis that initially impacted, you know, the, the broader community. And we do have a telehealth panel following the keynote. Um, so that will, you know, this is an important issue yes. in medicine at all, at, in healthcare at all levels, and particularly important to underrepresented communities. Um, I'd like to open it up to a general discussion. So, uh, Karen, you had mentioned um, a number of disparity issues and issues that your organization is addressing, and I know other organizations and the legislature is addressing these disparities as, as well. Could you go into a little more detail about how, you know, what you have proposed to address these inequities and what do you think is most important to focus on? Sure, thank you. It's a good question. So I think, again, um, the, the disparities and equities that we see in COVID are both in terms of um, who's catching the virus, who's dying from the virus, but also in terms of who's impacted by the um, economic recession or economic fallout of the pandemic. Um, we see that over well over half of Latinos and Blacks are reporting a loss of household income since March some amount of loss of household income, whether that's total job loss or whether that's reduction in hours, um, but that really significantly the economic impacts um, sort of fall on the same populations as the health impacts of the virus, right? And, and that's really not a surprise, but I think when we think about how to move forward, we have to be aware that even when we might think we're making some trade-offs to sort of keep the economy going, all of those things are falling disproportionately on communities of color. Um, and, you know, we sort of look at this as what are the issues that have existed in healthcare and have existed in our state for a long time that really, again, are uh, sort of COVID is layered on top of those, right? Um, and so we know communities of color have a higher burden of chronic disease. Um, and that, I, I always like to really stress, is not because of race, it's because of racism, right? Um, it's because we set up healthcare systems um, to only work for some people. And so I think to sort of close the loop on the telehealth conversation, what telehealth shows me is that 
our healthcare systems can change. They can change quickly yes, and they can change dramatically mm -hmm. if the will is there, right? And so thinking about how do we sort of um, take that knowledge as well as this urgency around the disparities, I think is really important to us. So we have sort of laid out, you know, sort of a series of steps and provided recommendations with a very broad coalition of community organizations to the administration that sort of fall into three categories. And the first is the immediate and ongoing response to the pandemic itself, right? Um, and I think, you know, Dr. Reynoso pointed out well that even the data we have, which shows alarming disparities, is incomplete. And uh, we believe the disparities are probably deeper and greater than the data even shows us because of who has access to testing, who has access to medical care when they do get sick. We're probably missing a lot of people and particularly yeah. we're missing people of color in that data. Um, and so we know that we need to have much more in terms of testing and contact tracing um, available in low-income communities of color. And not only available, but, you know, Sonia talked about the sort of education awareness outreach piece. Um, we need to make sure that people have accurate information and that they are getting it from messengers who are trusted in their community. And so, you know, when we think about everything that's involved with testing and contact tracing and those measures that are needed to contain the virus, um, we have to keep in mind that um, there are significant, there are fears that are very well founded and there are barriers to access that go beyond physical access to things, right? That if you are a person who perhaps is undocumented, you might have fears about going to the county to get tested. You might have fears about answering the phone when somebody calls you to ask who you've mm -hmm. been hanging out with. If you're a person who's on probation or parole, you might be very afraid to respond to those questions. And so we really need to have an approach that, um, that considers those issues and that is really community driven. And with that, I think one of the sort of biggest things that the pandemic exposes for us is the weakness of our social safety net, right? Because we, we need people to stay home when they're sick. We need people to stay home when they've been exposed. And um, a lot of people, particularly people of color, cannot do that because that is a choice between feeding the family and um, spreading or contracting the virus, that is an impossible choice, but it's not one that people should have to make. And so I think a lot of this too is how are we going to make sure that we are able to replace people's income and wages? How are we going to protect people's jobs? How are we going to protect people's housing? And that all of those things are critical. They cannot be separated from the response. Um, and then sort of the second piece we think about is this um, ongoing sort of not new work around um, dismantling systemic and institutional racism in our healthcare systems. And I could talk about that for hours, yeah, right? But we all could, I think yeah. just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so just to say, like, just a couple of things on it. One is that we still have access challenges, right? Uh, we have most people insured, but not everyone. And we still have, as the assembly member talked about, really significant barriers to actually getting medical care and even more significant barriers to getting mental health care <laughs> and that we have to address those but we also have to think about what kind of care are people getting because what we know is that for people of color particularly um, the black and native american community going to the doctor is not necessarily helping <laughs> um, which is unfortunate right but we see that even when people have access even when they go to the doctor we still are seeing poor health outcomes 
And that points to bias and discrimination within the healthcare system itself. That's not about a person, right? It's not about a person being biased, it's about a system. And so we really have to work to, um, to dismantle that so that um, we, we can, um, in the future, not be in the same position um, if there were to be an incident like this in the future. And then the final thing I'll say is public health. <laughs> I think no one in the state has ever been more aware of public health than we all are today, right? And of the necessity for having a strong, funded, coordinated, and community-centered public health infrastructure in California, in our counties. And we have, over the last decade, um, consistently underfunded public health, right? And we are, we are paying the consequence of that now. And I think it's really time to look at where do we put our dollars on both a state and local level and what are the choices that we're making? And one of the things that we find alarming is when we look at the choices we're making, where we're putting our dollars, um, you know, the amount of money that we put into public health, the amount of money that we put into mental health, pales in comparison to the amount of money that we put into actually somewhat oppressive systems, right? Like law enforcement and criminal justice. And so changing that picture um, is a really high priority for us. And I will stop there because I know my <laughs> colleagues can add just so much more to this discussion as well. Yes, um, Dr. Reynoso, do you have uh, anything to add? Because I mean, one thing that we're dealing with also is the distrust issue among minority communities among people of color and particularly among undocumented immigrants. And, um, you know, these issues are systemic. They have been in existence for decades. And um, there was some kind of interruption here. But uh, anyway, could you comment further on, on distressed issues and how to reach, how the healthcare system can better reach communities of color and provide equitable health care. And this is also tied to education, of course, to law enforcement, as Karen mentioned. Um, there are just so many interrelated issues here. If, if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, can absolutely. anybody join in here? Yeah, absolutely. And Karen kind of laid it out um, very well. Uh, mm -hmm. In terms of uh, distress with uh, the Linux community in California and you know, immigrants generally, you know, we, we often say at our organization that it isn't a fault of individuals for mistrust of the system. It's really the system that's creating um, the conditions that, uh, that create that mistrust. Um, I think the, the last uh, three or four years um, at a federal level, uh, this has only the anti-immigrant sentiment and policies at a federal level have only uh, created more mistrust. Uh, we were very concerned um, initially when there was uh, a leak around the public charge um, ruling at a national level, which would have um, prevented uh, some immigrants that um, took, took um, uh, uh, that uh, received social services or social benefits would have, uh, you know, counted against them um, in in their immigration status process. So, you know, I think uh, that with uh, the continued ratcheting up of ICE and uh, uh, ICE enforcement in our communities has really just created this, um, this, this uh, environment where um, immigrant communities just don't want to, uh, don't want to uh, enter the systems, whether they be clinics or counties, uh, that they need um, in order to, to stay healthy. And so it, it poses a barrier um, and a challenge. And so 
what we have proposed um, along with CPEN and we also submitted a letter uh, to the governor's office and members of agency is to really uh, partner with community-based organizations and those of us that are uh, community leaders and based in communities to be the messengers of the trusted database information. Uh, one of the recommendations uh, that we've long supported, um, which was part of a larger effort of the California Future Health Workforce Commission, was the investment in promotoras, uh, community health workers. Yeah. Uh, these, are, uh, these are a health workforce of community members that have an understanding that ranges from health education to advocacy and are really the linkages of community and the traditional health systems. And we think um, greater investment in this workforce is necessary um, to connect all the dots, right, um, within our fragmented um, healthcare and, and public health infrastructure. I also wanted to highlight um, a point. Um, we surveyed our community partner organizations across the state and our priority regions. And, you know, the, the one concern that came up, no surprise for the Latino community, was the economic, economic impacts of COVID. Um, a Pew Research Center surveyed uh, Latinos nationally, uh, and the Latino community has been the most impacted economically, 40%. Uh, of Latinos um, have experienced uh, job losses um, in terms of pay cuts. 29% uh, have lost their jobs. And so uh, when we look at the policy solutions at a federal level with the CARES package, um, it didn't really, it wasn't really inclusive of all Latino uh, communities, including our undocumented. And so we were um, very supportive um, and thrilled um, when, when the state uh, decided to uh, implement the uh, immigrant Resilience Fund, which was $125 million uh, of economic assistance in documented Californians. Uh, I think this is a model. Um, as we think about um, equity and uh, serving our communities, this was a public-private partnership. So it was a $75 million uh, state um, with a match of $50 million from our philanthropic partners. And as we think about, you know, what are those transformative um, uh, solutions for for Californians in, in terms of achieving health equity, I think it's going to take uh, these cross-sector partnerships with our philanthropic partners, with the business community. Uh, and, you know, I think one last thing that I'll share around this issue is uh, this issue of uh, essential workers, right? Uh, Latinos um, are 93% of farm workers. Um, we represent 78% of those of us that work in construction, 69% of those of us in the service uh, industry as cooks. And so uh, we don't have the luxury, right, of, of, of staying at home. And so uh, uh, workplace protections are so critical, um, whether it be paid sick leave uh, policies, whether um, it be implementation of some of those uh, state guidelines for physical distancing, mask wearing within uh, different sectors and occupations. Uh, while those policies are there at a statewide level, we kind of lose uh, the, the battle on implementation. And we've, uh, we, uh, we uh, have been hearing reports from uh, anecdotally from our farm workers that, you know, those physical distancing guidelines are just not feasible and they're not being implemented on the ground, right, day to day. And so, you know, a lot of challenges, but, but I do think um, that this is an opportunity for us to think about uh, what are, how are the policies that we're enacting at a state and local level either creating more disparity or reducing um, health disparities? And I think uh, everything that, you know, we've talked about in terms of uh, 
uh, removing barriers um, with regards to documentation status, uh, connecting with community-based organizations and funding community-based organizations to implement uh, some of these state dollars. Uh, the Immigrant Resilience Fund uh, granted uh, the state dollars to trusted immigrant rights partners to actually do the outreach and implementation of, of those, mm -hmm. of those um, payments. And so thinking through um, these strategies that are community-centered, uh, that partner with communities, I think is so essential and critical uh, to get a hold of this pandemic. You mentioned the um, lack of personal protective equipment for farm workers. And there have been recent stories about how, you know, huge quantities of, of masks and other equip protective equipment have been handed out by nonprofits, by government, and it never seems to get, it gets to, to the, the, the uh, farmers, but not to the farm workers. And of course they're working in very uh, difficult conditions uh, and often are living in multi-generational households. They're you know, certainly essential workers and they just have no, no protections. So that's a huge, huge problem. The other problem too is the lack of statistics um, on, and especially at the national level, we're seeing a lot of anecdotal and local and, and statewide statistics that show us, you know, yes. incredibly high percentage of people of color uh, dying of COVID, many of whom work in uh, essential occupations. Um, uh, so actually, uh, Sigrid, can I just, yeah, and I'm glad yes, you I mentioned that. See if you would elaborate on that. Yeah, right. well, so there is, there is a, you know, a serious challenge on data collection. And I mean, we, you know, we even see that, you know, in California, you know, in our, uh, uh, you know, our reporting system, you know, there's so much of the data that's not, you know, being collected, you know, by race, race and ethnicity. And, and we know in part because it, it is not going to tell, you know, a story, you know, that our uh, public health or even our private healthcare system really wants to, um, you know, to acknowledge. And this is happening nationally as well. But I mean, we know in the Black community, I mean, California Black Women's Health Project, we've spent, you know, years, you know, advocating, uh, you know, for, um, bifurcated experiences for the Black community and for Black women in healthcare. And we do that because we know that, you know, we face very distinct challenges when we come into, into those spaces. So either we are not counted or we are ignored or we are, um, you know, dismissed. And so when Black patients are even showing up to hospitals, you know, they are more likely to be turned away and told mm -hmm. to go home because we, we, have, we have to now create a scenario where we are training people how to speak you know, to mm -hmm. a healthcare provider and what to say and what to emphasize in order for them to even be you know, considered for care. Um, but that data gap um, you know, is, is alarming um, you know, that we don't know the data, but the data that we do know is, is so tragic and so grim, you know, that it would be, it would seem like there would be enough, you know, that there would be a dedicated response, you know, for our community, but everything from, you know, testing rates, you know, if you don't have, you know, money or you don't have, you know, um, access to, you know, the right, um, you know, systems, you will not be tested. And when you show up to a testing site and you don't say, you know, exactly what it is to convince the person on the other side of the rope, you know, that you should be tested, you are turned away. Um, there are constant, you know, challenges that we're facing. And, and I'm particularly concerned, and our community is particularly concerned, you know, about women and pregnant women who are now, 
you know, facing um, an, an added burden, you know, it being pregnant in the time of COVID, where for a Black woman, you know, just being, you know, pregnant and entering a healthcare system can be one of the most dangerous places, you know, in our lives. And, you know, so now, you know, having to, we, we, we have, um, you know, a, a statement that we often make, we say, when you're going to a healthcare visit, never go alone. You know, like yeah. you, you need, you know, yes. support in that space. But, you know, now because of, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the clear issues with, you know, transfer and, you know, the contracting the disease, you know, people cannot show up, you know, with family and, you know, with, with um, doulas and with, you know, uh, care, prof uh, you know, uh, uh, lay professionals who can help them, um, you know, navigate these spaces. And that's a real challenge for us. Um, you know, we're expecting, you know, that going forward, I mean, we will face a very serious, you know, post-COVID stress disorder. And, yes. you know, how do we, you know, and, and I can greatly appreciate it in Capital Weekly, um, you know, did a, a, a great announcement, I believe it was last week on, you know, all of the bills that were passed around mental health care. And so, you know, we do see, you know, advances, we do see movement, but I'm, I still remain, um, uh, suspicious and skeptical, you know, as to whether or not, you know, we will see, you know, that communities that are bearing an inordinate burden of stress and, you know, uh, Black mothers and birthing people who are bearing an inordinate uh, uh, burden of stress, which we know impacts, you know, their own lives and the, and the, and the lives of their you know, their unborn child or children who were, you know, born, you know, in a body that is, you know, that is heavily impacted by, you know, traumatic experiences and historical racism and structural issues um, in our system. I mean, we are worried about, you know, how do we, you know, step in the gap? I mean, we have a program that is, you know, um, we think is, you know, you know, making great strides, Sisters Mentally Mobilized, where we are training um, Black women to be mental health advocates. There are other, um, you know, uh, very dynamic, um, you know, practices that are going on around these community divine practices through California Department of Public Health, the Office of Health Equity and the CRDP, the California Reducing Disparities Project. There is work that is being done, but it requires more investment. It requires more trust in communities to create defined practices where we care for each other, where we can support ourselves through the healthcare system. We cannot count on the system alone because historically it has been set up and designed you know, to, to not care for us. And I yeah. mean, I'm very passionate about it. I really appreciate this space, you know, and I thank you all. I know that we're, we're getting close to our time, um, but I wish we could continue a conversation like this. But we, we could go on much longer. We've got about three minutes here and I'd like to look at, you know, going forward, um, the state auditor's report on um, Latterman Petra Short, which is the underpinning of the mental health system in California for the last half a century. Yeah. Um, she was very critical of the um, lack of data collection, the lack of follow-up care. Um, you know, there were no bills. I think there were a few bills introduced. I did that story on the wrap-up on the mental health legislation. I was surprised to see so much of it did pass. Uh, part of it was because of the auditor's recommendations. What do you see going forward in terms of legislative solutions and perhaps Assemblywoman Aguiar? Oh. Uh, keep hearing that, well, it's going to be better next year. We, we have this roadmap, you know, COVID will be passed. We don't know. You know, this next year, we need to navigate the system better, um, considering we were going through the COVID. You know, for instance, I had 22 bills that we didn't get to hear all of them, and many of them were related to health care and to uh, mental health issues. 
Um, so we, there's definitely some really good legislation out there, but this is something I need from you. So we should, we should learn from this, this pandemic, right? From this disaster. And um, are we gonna move on? Are we going to figure out some new lessons learned? And I want to just um, provide you the opportunity to visit with me and let's take a look at this. How are we gonna move forward? That's what makes me nervous because so many times we have these disasters. I can tell you how many fires we've been through, now the pandemic, um, and that we all have great ideas initially, but we don't follow through. And one of my rules in my office is what's the problem? How do you fix it? But more, most important, how do you implement it? And so I would love for you to be at the table and bring us some more, uh, some ideas. I mean, this past year we had a, a great idea for children with mental health and the bill just got, you know, diced and sliced and we didn't even get to bring it forward for children in, at the schools. So if, um, if we can all work together, I'd love to do that, as well as I want to read a word that you all said, it's all about trust. And I think the trust is how we get our communities to trust because as you said, the system has not been set up for everyone. And we need to break down those barriers. And maybe this is unfortunately a good time to reset. And I'm willing to reset the ideas. So I wanna just thank you all. I am sorry, I have another Zoom right now, but uh, I appreciate uh, Capital Weekly Secret. Thank you very much and all the panelists for including me today. Well, thank you all. We're just about, well, we've got one minute. Um, this is such an important topic and I really appreciate all of your input and all of the hard work that you're doing and going forward, um, we, have, we have many challenges and a lot of work to do. So thank you very much. Thank you. And all the panelists, thank you so much for participating. We are right at 11 o'clock. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.